Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Prime Minister Trudeau believes Canada's COVID-19 vaccine doses are still in good shape, even as the EU threatens protectionist measures to limit the export of those. We'll give you the details on that. Why are Doug Ford's efforts being wasted on airport testing when long-term care and schools and community spreads still need to be dealt with? And the Canadian commercial real estate industry is offering support to the national vaccination rollout. We'll explain how that's going to work out. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We want to get into uh, what is on a lot of people's minds these days, of course, and that is uh, the vaccine itself and the rollout. It uh, has been a very uh, distressing week, I guess, for especially people here in Canada, because, well, we know that this particular week we're not getting any new vaccines uh, from Pfizer because of uh, what they call a retooling at their uh, factory situation in Germany. Uh, And on top of that, of course, there was uh, some concern about what was going to be happening with uh, the European Union. They're poised to impose export controls on the vaccines. All of this led to a, a heated and emergency debate in the House of Commons yesterday, where the Prime Minister was asked to respond about all these questions that we seem to be having about vaccine supply. Over the past few weeks, I've spoken uh, with uh, executives at both Pfizer and Moderna who have assured me uh, that we are very much continuing to be on track uh, for receiving our full doses of vaccines in the timelines provided. That is uh, a full six million of doses from Pfizer and Moderna uh, by the end of Q1, the end of March. Not so sure that the opposition parties bought into that, but uh, we're going to try to dissect this for you and unpack some of the uh, stuff that was going on in the Commons, but also some of the information we're getting from uh, the European Union as well. Uh, to do that, we're pleased to welcome to the program uh, Dr. Thomas Tenkate, who is a pro- associate professor in the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University uh, in Toronto. Uh, professor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us. Yeah, thank you very much, Bill. Do you share the Prime Minister's optimism on this? Um, no, I don't. Not really, no. <laughs> okay, explain. Well, well, I think you know if, if you think about it, you know any any sort of um, you know manufacturing process, you you know there there can be hiccups, and and when we think about the the numbers of doses that uh, that uh, we're needing, you know the the facilities actually have to ramp up substantially to be able to to deliver on those promises, and and when we're and you know currently. Uh, you know, it's obvious that uh, they're not able to do that, and so, so yeah, I, you know, um, without uh, you know substantial upgrading and uh, you know retooling and, and whatever at the facilities, it, it it's unlikely that uh, you know they would uh, meet those expectations. I, I want to believe them, uh, and and uh, you know maybe in, in the passage of time it'll be proven to be right. But when I hear stories of, like the European Union poised to impose uh, export controls on this, and we've heard some of the debate going on in the states right now, Professor, that uh, they may be holding off on the second uh, shot of the vaccine because uh, not enough people are getting the first vaccine. Uh, that tells me that it's not just a Canadian problem. There's a global problem going on here, and and when people start to see that and they start to get a little anxious about this, uh, well. This, this, I guess, is the end result. I'm not going to suggest anybody's necessarily hoarding, but just because you've got a contract doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be fulfilled on time. I would think. Yeah, yeah, def- definitely. You know, and, and I think part of it is the issue of uh, you know what is normal practice and versus what 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 is sort of extraordinary circumstances right now. So, like my understanding is for the normal seasonal influenza, you know, we they, the normal capacity is around 1.5 billion doses each year but you know if you look around the world what we're needing for for uh you know covid 
uh, and particularly when you've a lot of the the, the uh, vaccines are you know requiring two doses, so then you've got to double that. And so, I think the U- European Union were wanting two billion doses just for themselves. Uh, you know, or you know, it, it's you know, in some some huge numbers that are you know five or six or you know multiples of what is norm you know under normal capacity. So so it's not sort of in some ways unexpected that you know you know that. Uh, you know, we're sort of looking down the barrel of of some uh, delays in, you know, delays in uh, supply. And, and that angst, of course, is exacerbated by the fact that now we're hearing that there are a couple of variations of uh, of the of the, the virus. Uh, the UK version has been, it's been known, and the, the Brazilian version, and the South African version. Uh, who knows how many others? But uh, and we're starting to get some uh, sense now that maybe some of those are starting to show up here in Ontario, uh, which I guess means people, you know, they're, they're going to be looking right now and say, "Well, come, I, I want that vaccine now." You know, I'm not going to wait until August or September for that. Uh, who knows what's going to happen in the meantime? And that's it's 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 making a, a very difficult situation that much worse i would think uh yeah well well definitely you know once you start having the, the variants uh you know one one question is is the current uh vaccine you know effective against those the new variants and my understanding was you know some for, for some of them they they believe it is but you know uh that's that may not be the case depending on you know more information we have on some of the you know the the newer variants and so so people i think should be uh, sort of considering the fact that you know this this uh, current uh, vaccine might be good for certain types of of the uh, coronavirus, uh, but may not be appropriate for all of them. So so there might be you know multiple doses for different different strains in essence. Which means you know we're we're going to be looking at this and say you know when is this stuff stuff going to be ready? And you touched on this a few minutes ago, Professor. Uh, supply and and uh, obviously there's a huge global demand here. And, and Pfizer's uh, plants, of course, over in Germany and Europe are, are pumping this stuff out. I suppose as fast as they can. I, I guess the United States is is a little bit better off because they do have a production facility in Kalamazoo, Michigan, uh, for mm-hmm. Pfizer. But uh, that's simply not going to be enough. Uh, do we wait until some of these other ones uh, come online? I know Johnson. Johnson seems to be uh, the next one in line for approval. We're not quite sure when that's going to happen. But uh, the more variations, does that mean more in the way of production immediately? Well, well, I think um, you know one one of the things is that you know yeah, like you say, currently there's only you know a couple of um, couple of types of the vaccine that are, are approved. Uh, but once we have more more on uh, more approved, then you've got more you know more uh, manufacturers. You've got more more supply, uh, whereas you know I did hear that one of the uh, manufacturers whose vaccine doesn't seem like it's going ahead have agreed to uh, you know produce one of the other manufacturers' vaccines for them, so to you know to to increase supply. So so maybe maybe you know as an interim measure, there's there, you know there might might need to be a uh, you know some sort of agreement across various manufacturers to say well yeah we'll manufacture your your product you know. In the meantime, while you know, while our product is uh, still going through the final final stages of testing, or, or something like that, because they're really, you know, it's not like you can, uh, you know, put in place a manufacturing facility, you know, very quickly. You, you, the facilities are, you know, have to be there. They have to be at the right standards and meet, you know, meet the requirements and whatever. So, so there's not that many of them around, and so, so you know, if they're already, you know, exceeding capacity. Uh, normal capacity, then, then you have to say, well, what are the options if we need to uh, need to, you know, boost capacity even more? 
Professor, maybe you could shed some light on, on something else that I'm, I'm getting a lot of emails about, and, and uh, it's, the, it's the vials themselves and the dosage. Uh, and, and I first heard of this, I guess, a week or a week and a half or so ago uh, down in the States where they were starting to, to get the vaccine out there. Uh, and a few jurisdictions said, actually, you know what, there's, there's actually six doses in this vial, not five, uh, so we can make this go farther. And now I guess the, the manufacturers are onto that right now. And uh, as we heard this morning on the news, what they're suggesting now is that everybody should get these special syringes that can extract that last little extra. It's like, I guess, you know, tipping your coffee cup up and make sure you get the last drop in there. But they say there's a whole extra dose in there, um, mm. which was somewhat surprising, I guess. But that's going to cost a lot more money than government stock because they don't have the uh, the, 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 the materials there, the, 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 the specific needles to actually do that sort of thing. Mm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I, I think, you know, there's, there's often a little bit of, you know, sort of residue in the, in the bottom of, of the vials. And, you know, and I think everyone, you know, if you're, you know, taking medicine at home, you know that often it's hard to get that last, last few drops out of a, you know, a, a measuring cup or, or whatever. And mm-hmm. so, so yeah, under these circumstances where, you know, every, every, um, sort of, uh, milliliter is, is precious, then, then, uh, yeah, maybe looking at, uh, additional, Ways to be able to extract it all is is the way to go. But like you say, is that that you know that's a different uh, supply product uh, supply problem than to to get those you know to get the the needles that are able to help you do that. So, but the other concern here is now what we're hearing from Pfizer and I think from Moderna as well is they're saying, well, if if you can extract an extra dose out of that, uh, we don't need to give you as much as as the contract called for. Uh, so mm. this this could get into a pretty sticky legal issue. Yeah, yeah, it's it. You know, it, it's it's you know, I, it, because we, you know, because it's all about contracts, and you know, so there, you know, once you, once you talk the combination of business and politics and health, it, it gets uh, can get pretty messy. So, but uh, you know, but the reality is, under the you know the way we operate, we 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 are reliant on uh, you know the private companies to 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 uh, produce produce the vaccine. So, uh, we just. We'd like to think that uh, you know they they honour their current contracts, but but I think it that it also shows that uh, you know we also have to be looking at uh, you know future contracts and and you know negotiating them now for once once the current contracts uh, end because basically the current contracts aren't going to uh, you know we we need a lot more than what we we currently contracted for so so we have to be looking at those contracts you know the future contracts now but you know I don't know how. Uh, willing the companies are to, to to really negotiate right at the moment given the current uh, current supply issues and and there i think causes a lot of the confusion with, with some of the stuff that we're hearing on a daily basis professor because uh, who we're hearing from now are governments elected officials we're going to do this we want to do this uh they don't really control the supply here do they as you mentioned these are private companies i mean Pfizer's going to pump this out as quickly or as slowly and I, I give them you know the benefit of the doubt that they're doing it as quickly as possible uh as will uh, moderna as will astrazeneca when they start to produce these on mass too but the government can only ask or maybe even demand but they can't actually produce the stuff Hmm. Well, yeah, you know, and I think people also have to remember that, you know, every, every extra dose that the, the, the companies are able to produce is, you know, more profit for them. So obviously sure. they have a lot of interest in producing as much as as they can, uh, but uh, but they also have, you know, sort of limitations on, on capacity in regard to the uh, the facilities they have as well. 
Professor, uh, are we letting our guard down a little bit with all this talk about vaccines? And, and even if it is going to be September before the majority of us uh, will actually you know, be able to roll up our sleeves and get at least the first, if not the second dose of these things. Uh, but are we dropping the ball on other things like testing and, uh, and uh, mandatory testing, as we've talked about, and even uh, isolation for people coming into the country? That seems to be a renewed discussion and a re- renewed debate now that we've seen uh, some of these uh, second variations of the virus that seem to be going on from other parts of the world. Yeah, definitely, you know, sort of people have pinned their hopes on, you know, you know the vaccine and the vaccine being a saviour. But, but the reality is that it's only one element of the broader prevention measures that, that need to be in place. And, and, and you know, while, while, the, while we're rolling out the uh, vaccine uh, distribution, the, the existing measures really need to be, uh, you know, abided by, but also in a lot of ways... Uh, strengthened because you know with the the new variants that that uh, we understand are, are more uh, more infective you know they can be transmitted more easily there's some indication of potentially uh, you know worse symptoms then then the the measures that we have currently you know I, I think people have to say well you know they're they're an absolute minimum we we probably need to look at you know strengthening the the existing measures of both uh, what the what we're asking the public to do, but also the measures the uh, the government is is uh, you know in control of what is around testing and uh, case and uh, case follow up and uh, you know and and, uh, and these other measures that are that are really a lot of other resource uh, you know provide resource implications for the government as well. But uh, so in a lot of ways we're not you know we're actually got to be ramping up the existing measures. While while the vaccine is while the vaccine's being uh, rolled out, and and as we're hearing from a, a number of different people that we're talking about, uh, we have to I guess you know manage your expectations here, uh, that even if everybody is vaccinated in the way the government is suggesting, we could be say let's say by Labor Day or whatever it might be, uh, that doesn't eradicate the, the the virus. It's still out there, and uh, you know the mask wearing, the social distancing. Uh, is, is still going to be in play, I guess, for some time to come. And uh, we should not have any expectation that, you know, we're going to put 50,000 people into the Rogers Centre to go watch a baseball game uh, sometime in September either, that uh, this is going to be a gradual return to, to what we think is normal. Well, yeah, yeah, I think people also, you know, one thing people have to remember is that just because you might be vaccinated doesn't mean that you may not be able to transmit it to someone else. So, so it means that you know you may not get the symptoms, but you might be infective and you could infect someone else. And so, so that's where the the whole herd immunity, uh, you know, sort of debate comes in of having a you know a maybe sixty to seventy percent of the uh, population uh, who are immunised means that there's less less people who aren't immunised who could could uh, you know become infected and have symptoms. But but it doesn't mean that the virus isn't going to be circulating. Uh, within the community anyway so so we have to you know because of that it's about what what do we need to do to you know protect everyone in the community uh, you know even even uh, people who are vaccinated well it's it's always refreshing I think and important for us to actually uh, get the science on this as opposed to to the political perspective on it and because sometimes they can be two very different uh, ideas about exactly the same topic which is why I'm so glad you had some time for us professor thank you so much for the time great talking with you today Yeah, thank you very much, Bill. Really appreciate it.
Take care. That's uh, Thomas Tenke, of course, professor at the School of Occupational Public Health at uh, Ryerson University in Toronto. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday on the program, uh, we had a, a very insightful discussion about long-term care facilities here in this province because there are some statistics that should bother us and that do bother most people. Uh, and I guess what's even more bothersome is, is the inaction, as, as some people would characterize it, by the provincial government to act on a number of recommendations that have come forward from experts. And, and quite frankly, we can use the city of Hamilton as a, as a microcosm for this much bigger problem. You know, we've got one facility right now, Grace Villa, up on the, the South Mountain, uh, that had to be taken over by Hamilton Health Sciences because of mismanagement. Uh, there's a talk now of revoking that license. Uh, there's a, a, a number of other facilities in the Hamilton area alone that are under scrutiny because of the lack of uh, proper care that they were giving residents. So, I mean, we've got a problem, and it's not just here. It's it's w- province-wide. So yesterday we were talking with Dr. Amit Arya, who's uh, part of a new organization called Doctors for Justice and Long-Term Care, and he explained to us why he and uh, his organization still think that maybe it's time to have a discussion and maybe end for-profit long-term care. This is what he said. Private for-profit long-term care homes have had far worse outcomes as compared to public homes. And that's related to the fact that, well, one of the ways they generate revenue is by keeping their health workers poor. They're more likely to have, you know, part-time casual staff. They're less likely to have people who are, pay, you know, being paid benefits. And what that means in the middle of a pandemic is they're more, much more likely to end up in these staffing crises and, you know, these scenarios where we hear of these, you know, appalling situations of neglect where people are ending up without food and water. And that absolutely should not happen. It's a very important element, and, and there are a number of different recommendations, by the way, that uh, were put out by Doctors for Justice and Long-Term Care. And to carry on the conversation, because so many of you were asking questions about it after our segment yesterday, uh, please do welcome back to the program Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, who is the co-founder of Doctors for Justice in Long-Term Care and also a professor at Ontario Tech University. Doctor, great to have you back on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks, Bill. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Well, let's Vivian, let's talk about exactly what you guys are recommending. And I, I, I focused on uh, the for-profit situations, and that's only one of many. I, and I, I do want to circle around back to that. But there are a number of different things that you've also put in this letter to the government uh, that, that makes so much sense. These are common sense things that not just you and your organization, uh, but a number of other professionals, including people in the business, have said to the government, why aren't you doing this? And, and so far, crickets. We're not hearing much of anything from the government. Yeah, and that's the frustrating part is that there's this, you know, kind of diversionary tactic right now employed by our officials to, you know, look at the plane, look at the plane or look at anything but what's happening in long term care. And you barely ever see our minister of long term care. And I think that's part of that, um, you know, strategy to try to keep out of the public's view how terrible things remain in long term care and how little that they have done to enact the safeguards that have been he universally called upon by them, by experts, frontline staff, the unions representing the workers, their own long-term care commissioners. It is just flabbergasting that we are still in this position where we are now at the point, and we predicted this would happen, that we are losing seniors by the hour in long-term care. That's where we're at right now. Uh, I've told you, but just to remind our listeners, we have booked that ministry twice on the program, and uh, they have canceled at the last minute both times. So uh, that, I think, underscores exactly what you were saying. All right, let's let's focus in on, on 
how this is working. We do know uh, the majority of, of launcher facilities in this province, of course, are privately owned. Uh, and, you know, here in Hamilton, uh, there are two that are run by the municipality. Uh, there are uh, some others that are uh, some other entities, so not for profits, but most of them. So, and therein seems to lie the problem. And there is mixed messaging going on, Vivian, about exactly what's happening here. As as uh, Dr. Ayo told us yesterday, uh, the numbers are there, and the numbers don't lie. There are more yeah. deaths in these facilities. There are more COVID cases. And, and but but some people are just saying no 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 and there have been studies that have come out that the government is holding up and saying that's not necessarily true. Uh, well, listen, the studies they're pulling up, they're cherry picking from the results, and, and I know for a fact which study they're talking about because Minister Fullerton herself cited Nathan Stahl in the House of Legislature, and she specifically focused on one specific aspect of his group paper that that the the greatest risk of an outbreak, which means one case for a long-term care home is community transmission. Nobody argues that. That's not the problem. The problem, and what she left out, all the evidence that came after that, is that once that virus gets into the home, the for-profit homes have the deadliest outbreaks, the worst outcomes. She conveniently left that out of her discussion. And this is what I mean. They continuously cherry-pick findings that supplement what they are saying or that provide that that false depiction that everything is fine whilst ignoring the large coinciding body of literature that says, well, hold on. What is most important is what happens when it gets inside the home. Why are we not hearing about municipal homes having these devastating outbreaks? Because they know how to handle the outbreak. They are properly implementing infection prevention and control. They have full-time, often permanent staff working at one facility, often working at that facility for sometimes upwards of 20 years, which is another issue for continuity of care. It's just better for residents all around. When you have residents who have been there a long time, they're less likely to use agency workers. I mean, give me a break. They are blatantly disregarding the clear majority of international literature that says for-profit model fails. It fails the residents. It fails the seniors. It fails the families. It fails the workers. The only people that benefit in this model are the CEOs and shareholders. So you've got to really start asking yourself right now, for all these people defending for-profit, why are you doing that? Where are your conflicts of interest? Are there relationships that need to be unearthed and exposed that are revealing why you are continuously defending bad actors with a clear record of failure? It doesn't make sense. This is anti-evidence-based. It's not okay. We had uh, Professor Stahl on the program just after the, that report was released, uh, and, and I asked him extensively about a number of things. And, and I, now, I, I haven't read the whole report, but I did read the overview, and I did dive into an awful lot of issues. And one of them was staffing. And I want to get your read on this yes. because uh, I said you haven't really gone into very much detail here. And he says, well, we didn't on the report. Uh, and his, his, his rationale for that was, he says, because there's no consistent standard across the province for hiring, training, et cetera. And I said, well, isn't that the problem then, that, that is there is the no problem. consistent? Uh, and I said that, that should have been explored a lot deeper. And, and, and the, the report seems to gloss over staffing. Yeah. Staffing is maybe not the most important issue, but I'm telling you, it's in the top three. There's no it's, it's a big it. problem. No question about it. I, I mean, listen, the minute that report came out, Nathan knows. I contacted him directly with my thoughts about that and how I thought it was you know, a, a big problem that staffing wasn't included in the model. And, and in my opinion, it would have changed the results. I mean, we've had this conversation. Uh, Nathan knows how I feel about this. Um, we do not have clear, transparent data. This is something that we have been calling for. The long-term care commissioners called for this as well. This is a big problem because when the, the studies that actually have been done have indeed shown that the municipal homes 
they have more full-time permanent employees. They're paid better. They're protected by union protections. They have paid sick leave, which is why they're not more likely to bring the virus in if they're not feeling well and, and, and be put in that difficult position where you either pay your bills or go to work potentially sick, which a lot of unfortunately people have to do in the for-profit sector because they are not protected by union permanent protections that offer, you know, two weeks of sick paid sick leave. I mean, give me a break. We have been talking about this for a long time. If even this government didn't want to address the staffing problem, in the very least, they could have provided paid sick leave for 10 days to recognize what we've all been saying, that you are introducing the virus into these homes via precariously employed workers who are put in in an impossible situation, not pay their rent for the month, or go to work potentially sick. You are you are actively putting them in that position by failing to provide two weeks of paid sick leave. And we have been calling for this for a very long time. All of the experts have. It's just flat out failure for every single element of this sector. The workers are not, they're dangerously employed. There's a reason why, you know, uh, the estimates show a third of them left after the first wave. The SEIU is one of the largest unions representing PSWs. And they said, we lost a third of our our workforce because, of course, you're working in dangerous conditions where many of them were not provided proper PPE, had to watch, you know, the, the, the residents that they've grown close to in many cases die in very terrible, tragic circumstances with not enough medications in these facilities to help end-of-life care. Uh, it was a horrifying post-traumatic stress-inducing first wave for these workers. And we went into the second wave knowing we had lost roughly a third of them in the biggest union. And yet we did nothing to replace those lost workers. We were screaming for months. You need to engage in a sector-wide staffing blitz. This is the number one thing you have to do to protect these residents ahead of the second wave. They didn't do it. Well, but you know their response to this, because you and I talked about this just before Christmas. Their answer to that is this this uh, fabulous idea that they have that they're going to go on a, a, a oh. recruiting drive. And by 2024, they're going to bring the standards up and, and the, the staffing levels up. <laughs> Quebec did it in six weeks. They want to do it in four years. Yeah. I, I just don't understand this. It's offensive. It's, it's the story of this government's LTC pandemic response. Too little, too late. You're not doing anything to help these workers right now. You've essentially signed their death warrants by saying, you know, five years, we'll deal with it. Five years. Who does that help right now, given that the average lifespan of a resident upon admission is 12 to 18 months? I mean, we're going to lose so many seniors before we actually have a modicum of a care standard. And keep in mind, that care standard, four hours, was developed over a decade ago. The actual experts who developed that standard have said, you actually need to bring it up to more six to seven hours because of the increasing frailty and comorbidity of these residents. So we're not even, like, we're we're sitting here begging for four hours. Like, that's something to be proud of. And, they're you know, when they did that press conference, they were making it sound like literally they, they invented the cure for cancer. Um, meanwhile, it's not even the standard that we need right now as per the evidence. There is just no acknowledgement of the evidence. They do not have the right people informing them of what's going on. I don't know who they have circulating them, what kind of sycophants are around them simply telling them or parroting them what they want to hear. But the experts who research in this area, the workers who work in this area, know what needs to be done. Why are they not at the table helping to create solutions? Give me a break. You are actively contributing to this dangerous status quo that does nothing but endanger our seniors. 
any time this came up in the past, and, and as we've talked about, a lot of the problems we're talking about in long-term care here, uh, as, as you've written about and, and talked about, uh, predate the pandemic. They, they were there. This, yeah. this just this just made a, a, a terrible situation even worse. But it was always dismissed back in those days. Anytime we would talk about it on this program, too, by, uh, this just, that's just those union people. They're just making a big squawk because yeah. they want more money and they want more holidays and they want yada, yada, yada. You know what they're all like. It's the same argument they used against teachers and a bunch of other people, too. Exactly. Uh, and 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 I guess for some reason, because if it's not in front of mine and it's not your your mother or father or, or loved yeah. one that's in there, you're not paying much attention to it. But it's gone beyond that. I'd like to think it's gone beyond that right now to understand that that you know who you hire, how you train them, how much you pay them has an impact on the care of the people that are going to be residents in those facilities. Yeah, it's. It, it, I mean, don't people realize that at some point? Do they think they're infallible? You're going to age. Everybody is going to need long-term care, be it institutionalized care or, you know, home care. And frankly, home care is even a scarier, more privatized, dangerous mess than long-term care. So, you know, and that's been also wildly undercovered in this pandemic. The poor seniors trying to age at home right now with the joke of home care response that we have right now is, is a whole other disaster that needs to be dealt with. And this is why I've had conversations. When I talk to the PMO's office, I have been very clear in my calls that they need to amend a, a form of Medicare, either expand on Medicare. You don't necessarily need to deal with um, amending the Canada Health Act, but you definitely need to create some form of parallel legislation that incorporates both public, publicly provided, zero-profit-based long-term care and home care. There is no question that that is the only ethical evidence-based way to go forward anything short of that will be failure and it will be simply plain to the people who have power and are trying to lobby against the very clear evidence for publicly provided care I, uh, as I mentioned, talked to uh, Professor Stahl about this, and there was one area that, that we actually agreed on, and that they did cover in the report. I know you've seen this yeah. too, uh, and it was about the, uh, the the fact that okay, there might be a spike in some areas uh, with the the for-profit home, but they said because most of the time those are older facilities uh, that are yeah. in bad repair, and I said, well, isn't it incumbent upon Absolutely. them to fix it if there's a problem? And yeah. and instead, as we've said yeah. subsequently, they've admitted that now they said, yeah, we want the province to pay for it, which only Absolutely. underscores to me that all they're concerned about. Here is their bottom line, not quality of care. There is no question about it. And I brought this up, too. Like, that's another diversionary tactic. Why are people saying, well, they're older homes. That's why. Yes. But keep in mind, people, those older homes were outlawed in 1998 in Ontario. Ward rooms were banned as of 1998. Yet 40% of these Ontario nursing homes remain with ward rooms. These providers knew that they had over two decades to upgrade the facilities. But instead, they chose to divert those funds that would cost to, you know, create the upgrades as necessary into their shareholders and CEOs compensation. Give me a break. That shows you clearly why you cannot trust the for-profit model, because instead of literally following the law, and this is the fault of previous governments as well, for not making them, setting clear Mm -hmm. deadlines as to when you have to upgrade these facilities to be safe, because they knew that they were tinderboxes. Every year, those homes suffer from higher rates of seasonal flu and other respiratory viruses. The danger was known. They cannot pretend they did not know they were going into this pandemic with tinderboxes, okay? So give me a break to all these for-profit providers that are trying to protect themselves and saying, well, yeah, we should have, but, you know, we needed the money to do it. Get out of here. You were the three largest homes were able to dole out over 140 million in dividends over the last 10 months of this pandemic. Yet they didn't have time over the last 20 years. 
to upgrade their facilities to be safer for the residents they claim to care for? Get out of here. We got about a minute and a half, two minutes left here, and I, there's one other point I just got to touch on here because it's something that's really been bugging me from from the day one that, that we've noticed these numbers. And that goes back to the first pandemic, uh, and that is responsibility here. And and I know yeah. some people simply dismiss this and said, "Look, the government can't afford to take over all these facilities," uh, and that's a debate we might be able to have. But even if you do believe in public-private partnerships, and there may be some merit in that, the only way they work, and time has shown us this, not just with this, but healthcare, with garbage collection, whatever else, there has to be oversight there have to be standards and they have to be enforced uh, and they have to be enforced with rigor in other words if you're not going to play ball you lose your license you don't do this anymore yeah. they're not doing this in the province no. doctor as you well know even after the furor about the number of uh, inspections that were reduced in 2019 yeah. last year in the heat of the pandemic only six six inspections done across the whole province i mean that's that's disgusting so the the yeah. provinces wash their hands of this too well, not just that. Remember, they created Bill 218 that, that shielded nursing homes from COVID-19 liability. So now these poor families have to demonstrate for the first time ever, this is precedent-setting gross negligence. Uh, you've effectively provided, you provided, you actively legislated a get-out-of-jail-free card for these bad actors. And I, per I warned about this. I predicted that that would facilitate a complacency among the worst bad actors. Why would they need to go out of their way? to effectively shore up staffing and do the things they needed to do to protect themselves ahead of the second wave. Well, not themselves, because who are we kidding? The CEOs and the shareholders and ever in these actual facilities, maybe if they were forced to spend a night in them, they actually would do what needs to be done. That would be the best punishment ever, to sentence all of these bad actors to live. Forget a night. They wouldn't last a night. Try living a month in a long-term care facility in one of those bad actors. Go, enjoy, please. That's what I'd love to see. Then tell me they wouldn't change it. Exactly. Vivian, I, I wish you and, and others, uh, the, over 250 doctors, the last count, well, uh, that have signed on. Now. Is it? Okay. That's yeah. good to know. Doctors for Justice in Long-Term Care, they are a voice, a strong voice, and here's hoping uh, that they shake some of the, the foundations at uh, Queen's Park. Let's uh, stay in touch. Thanks again for the time today. Anytime. Thank you, Bill. Take care. Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, of course, co-founder of Doctors for Justice and Long-Term Care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're talking about the vaccination program at the beginning of the program and the concerns that are being raised by that. Uh, one of them, of course, is distribution. How, when we do get our hands on enough vaccine, is it going to be distributed? How are we going to be able to go someplace and roll up our sleeves and actually get the first and second doses? Well, uh, some folks are stepping up, and that's really good news. RealPAC and its member organization are now pleased to announce that an industry initiative is underway to support the national vaccination rollout. Uh, to talk about this, we're pleased to welcome uh, Michael Brooks, who is the CEO of RealPAC, the Canadian commercial real estate industry. Uh, Michael, first of all, thank you so much for joining us. Glad you could be with us this morning. Yeah, glad to be here. And second of all, congratulations on this initiative. Maybe you could explain to our listeners exactly what uh, RealPAC is going to be doing. Uh, what we're going to be doing is trying to play matchmaker uh, between... <laughs> demand for vaccination sites coast to coast uh, and the uh, supply that a lot of our members have as a result of, of the pandemic of empty retail stores uh, but it could be office space it could be underused hotel convention rooms it could be a number of things we just think that we have a, a unique opportunity to be part of the solution and accelerate the vaccination rollout well you guys are an answer to a question a lot of us were having and i think a lot of people in in, in the 
political element and certainly in the medical element were is is distribution i mean you know we don't want to go to hospitals we don't want to crowd those they're, they're too busy doing other things with covid right now too uh and and you know the fact that you guys i guess have looked at your stock and say hey wait a second we can help here uh is, is just i think it's a fabulous answer to uh, something that a lot of us were going to be concerned about about how this was going to get rolled out yeah when we did the analysis of this even if you just think of ontario uh, I don't know, 14-ish million people, say 11 million of those are over 18. Uh, 11 million people times two doses, 22 million doses. Trudeau has said by the end of September, you just do the math on that, 22 million jabs, um, div- you know, and, and over how many vaccination sites? And you're going to make someone from Sudbury drive down to the Toronto Convention Center? No. So you got to distribute this stuff far and wide in the province. Um, and uh, these things, I think, are going to have to run like an MRI machine. We're going to have to be giving people needles, you know, 24-7. And, and yeah. for me, I am quite happy to go get my first and second vaccine at 3 in the morning. Oh, sure. Just to get it done. I mean, Just to get you know, it done. As we were saying earlier in the show, Michael, I mean, you know, the talk now about variations on this and the UK variation and the Brazilian variation and South African, it's it's a little frightening for a lot of us. And we're just saying, come on, where is this stuff and how quickly can we get it? And and as you said, when they've had the mass vaccination sites, I mean, I, I can't go to Toronto and line up for an hour and a half or two hours or however long it's going to be. Uh, you wanted to think, and I think a lot of us were hoping that the eventual way to get this vaccine would be like we did with the flu vaccine. You just go to your local pharmacy, uh, as they've been doing for years and years and years. We're not there yet, but you guys have just, you filled that gap and said, hey, wait a second, we can do this. Yeah, I'm not sure pharmacies, you know, think about this for a second. You're going to have a lineup snaking through the aisles at Shoppers Drug Mart. Yeah. And you've got to apparently wait 15 or 20 minutes after in case there's an adverse reaction. You need medical staff to monitor that person. Are you doing that in Shoppers? You, well, uh, you can't. I mean, for instance, yeah. the one in my neighborhood just around the corner from me here where I got my flu shot, there's one chair. And, yeah. and you're right. I mean, they're they're lined up at the you know the back of for prescriptions now anyway. Uh, the vaccination thing just really doesn't make sense, especially because you know, and I think this is why it's such a great idea that you guys have jumped in here. We know that there's going to be a huge uptake for this. I think the, the last we saw this from a national averaging is something over ninety percent of the people that that have been asked that said, "Yeah, I'll roll up my sleeve. I want this thing." Absolutely. And think about what we have available. We say a mall, a mall. You can wait inside and be warm. Yeah. You're out of the rain, you're out of the cold, you're out of the snow. Um, and there's, a, there's vacancies in pretty much every mall in the country, you know, with, with the, the bankruptcy of various retailers. So set up shop in one of those uh, empty CRUs. Uh, people are even using Sears, empty Sears stores in the States, uh, which we could do up here as well. Or think about a big box mall where a couple of the boxes are empty. Uh, they're, you know, those are huge indoor spaces. Um, they'd be ideal, really, to, to roll these things out. So that's what we're hoping to do is to make these types of spaces available uh, for the vaccination program. And, we're, and, by the way, one of the quid pro quos with all of our members, yeah. no rent. This is rent-free. That's even better. That's a yeah. bonus on this. How soon can you get this thing rolling? Well, we uh, we just did... Uh, I mean, you're just you're doing your part. We don't have any vaccine right now, but, no. I mean, you know, when, when we do... But, you know, I, I think that I think all across the country, they're just thinking this through now and trying to get this organized. So I think our timing's right. We just announced this oh, last yeah. Wednesday. You know, we're barely a week into it. We've already got nibbles uh, from the West Coast to uh, Central Canada. And uh, 
one of the problems we're having, Bill, is that we're not quite sure who's in charge. Like, is this a provincial decision, a municipal decision, a local medical officer of health decision? Is there some kind of a committee around this? So we, we've had to really work the phones to figure out who do we talk to. Uh, when you find, find that out, please let us know, because I don't think we know the answer to that either. But yeah. <laughs> that's that's the politics of it, and hopefully they can put that to the side for the time being. Uh, but you guys should be at the table, and you will be at the table. Michael, congratulations again to you and your members uh, for really stepping up and helping out with this. And uh, I think we'll see the fruits of the that decision in hopefully in the next couple of weeks and months as we move forward. But thanks for this, and thanks for the time today. All right. You're welcome. Take, Take care. care. Michael Brooks, uh, CEO for RealPack. That's uh, the Canadian commercial real estate industry, and they're offering free space right free uh, for vaccine distribution for these mass inoculations that we're going to have to have for COVID-19. Good stuff. Way to go. That's the kind of corporate responsibility that we like to see, people stepping up uh, to try to make this an easy, easy process for everybody who's going to be involved in this. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.